All right, everybody, welcome to your first class, from what I understand. I guess I get to see Which teams are this? Are these? Six to ten. All right. All right, before we even get into introductions, and just to tell you a little bit about who I am, let's just begin with a word of prayer, and let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people. Lord, we're thankful that you've blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ with all things. Father, we have riches beyond our imagination. We have blessings that are part of being in your family, a part of your kingdom, of serving you in this world that we're just beginning to understand. Father, we gather for these times of study to really understand what it means to be a human what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to do life with you in your kingdom, to serve your purposes in this world. And uh, Father, we just confess we get confused about all that, and uh, we pray for just a bit of clarity this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my name is Rick Schaefer, and this is my first time teaching a class here at YXL. This is my second time here. I was, last year I was a staff person, I guess you would call it, with Toby. We had a group last year, and we had a few of you. Uh, so I'm excited to be here this, this year and to talk about this whole idea of being stained, um, which is sort of a nebulous kind of topic, but hopefully the further we get into the week, the more we're going to understand that and just sort of see how that plays out. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about where we're going, but let me just say a word or two about who I am and sort of why I'm here and how I got here. So I'm a pastor in Long Beach. Any, how many people know where Long Beach is? Wow, half the group. So we live across the bay from the Queen Mary. If you don't know where Long Beach is, you might know where the Queen Mary is. If you don't know where the Queen Mary is, don't worry. Even the people in Long Beach don't go there. Um, but it's still there, and anyhow, that's where we live. It's just sort of coastal uh, LA area. And we've been there about four years. We went there to plant a church. And we went to plant a church and to take the gospel where the gospel was not, to, take, to plant a church among people who would not go to church, among people who are really burnt out, struggling, cynical with Christianity, with faith in general. And what we ended up with was somewhere between, at this point, 120 to 140 hipsters. Now, who knows what a hipster is? You've got, ooh, the numbers are going down. If you're from Nebraska, you have no idea what a hipster is. Um, so someone enlighten us. What is, an, what, and Sam Pepke's not here, so he can't. He'd be glad to inform us all about what a hipster is. So anybody besides my boys who live in Hipsterville, uh, tell us, what is a hipster? Okay, well, Sammy's going to know, too. Little, little Sam here. They listen to indie rock, and they wear different clothes. Uh, tight jeans. Tight jeans. Skinny jeans. Yeah. The whole attitude is to not care, but the ironic thing is they try so hard to dress a certain way and stand out, and they end up looking like they came out of a different decade, but worse. Yeah. So a little bit out of the 70s. They all got the beanie hats on, right? Indie music. Uh, anything that's rank and file pop, anything in the top 50 songs, they've probably not heard, right? They don't listen to anything like that. Um, they're poor. They're mostly, uh, their world is about the arts. 
And uh, so most of my church is in their late 20s to early 30s. They're artists, they're musicians, they do various kinds of art, and uh, they're almost entirely poor, barely, not almost living on the streets. And that's our church, that's our family. And it's a group of people that I really feel privileged to call family. And we're excited to be there with them. Um, and we'd love to have you come visit us one day. Um, but we went there four years ago to begin this work. And uh, that was after a long season of my life of various kinds of ministry. I started ministry when I was 20 years old as a youth pastor in Temecula, sort of California. Anybody know where that is? And, you know, we just, that's like inland San Diego County. Went there. I realized after a year of doing youth ministry, had a lot of kids, realized I didn't know what I was doing. And so decided to go to seminary. Went to seminary in Portland and did seminary for a year and a half. Had two sets of twins. Many of you have met some of my boys. I've got all of them here, I think. So you got David and Daniel here. They're my oldest. They're 17, almost 18. They're going to be seniors. Then I've got Joseph, and I have Joshua and Joshua's not in here, I don't think. We had, what's that? He's still walking. He's, still, he's lost. Uh, could be. Uh, so we had two sets of twins, and after that, I quickly went into, uh, we were at a big church. Uh, I was over college, high school, and junior high. And uh, started reading biographies at that point in my life. Uh, and I just devoured them about sort of the great saints. And the more I read, the more I became captivated with their life and concerned about my own. Uh, so much so that I, re I was reading a biography of George Whitfield, anybody? 1700s, part of the Great Awakening. And, uh, took his biography into my pastor's office and I laid it down, I opened the book in front of him, I said, why is their experience of Christianity so categorically different than mine? And not just from mine, and this I don't think bode well for me in my relationship with him, but I said, and from our church, and from what I see in the church, why is it that Christianity seems so thin, so reduced, so unpalatable, um, and the Christianity that they live, the dynamic of their faith and their life seem to be so strong, so rich, so full, so captivating, not just to them, but to everybody else. Uh, when you read uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, he wasn't even a Christian, he would go out and listen to uh, George Whitfield preach, and George Whitfield in this day would preach to 60,000 people in open-air fields. And that's like standing in the middle of Angel Stadium and just letting it rip, and that's what he used to do. But Benjamin Franklin writes about George Whitfield just because he was so captivated by him as a person. There was something about the dynamic of his life that he just found very compelling. And so he constantly writes about Whitfield and became a friend of Whitfield, but he, I don't think he ever ended up believing. But he said there's something about his life and the distinction of his life and the compelling nature of it that just captivated him. And what it did for Benjamin Franklin, it did for me. It captivated me, but it humbled me, and it began to create a thirst in me uh, that was unsatisfied. And so at 25, roughly, I resigned from the ministry. I was at my end. My life was falling apart. I went into a black space. 
It was a deep, dark pit. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, I was in the slough of despondency. And it was a despondent slough I was in. And it's a dark place. And you read about that place in the Psalms. One of the things I like about the Psalms, just to head down a tangent, is that the Psalms risk openness. They press you to risk openness in your praying. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow, by the way. Um, and I just started being open and honest about where I was. It's actually one of the things I appreciate about the hipster culture is actually a level of honesty. It might be radically cynical, which it is, but it also happens to be true, and it's honest. And I get straightforward conversation with them. I, I just love that. So at 25, I, I was out of the ministry, and I was driving a rig, uh, which is nothing exciting. I was a mover. I was, worked at a moving company for about two years. And I was on my way home from Washington, listening to some dialogue about, uh, about the gospel. And I heard things I'd never heard before. And one of the things I recognized at that point, I had been given a Bible on my trip. I took my Bible. It was a new Geneva study Bible. They had just came out, whatever year that was. And I took my brand new new Geneva study Bible. And if you saw it today, you could tell that I did this. I threw it out the window of the rig. Uh, now my cover is all jacked because I went and picked it back up again, so it's all thrashed. But it was brand new at that moment. And the reason I threw it out the window is because I felt like it had no answers for me. Um, I had searched, I had been in the ministry, I had been a pastor, I had been to seminary, but was just grappling with something really deep down and dark down inside, and I found no answers. And at that, po that point, the despair in me just got really big. I pulled over. I was just an emotional mess. I was a spiritual mess. And at that point, uh, there was an artist some time ago called Giacometti. And he felt like at one point in his life, he got exposed to a soul. And he was a sculptor. And I wanted to bring this, but I didn't have any time to fashion this, and I should have done it over breakfast. But imagine taking some tinfoil and crunching it up my boys have seen this many, many times in their life, and making a little man out of it, out of tinfoil, and then spray painting it black. He made a sculpture that looked like that, and he said, that's my soul, uh, Giacometti did. And I think at that point in the desert, what I realized about myself was that that was my soul, that it was deep, it was dark, it was black, and I had no hope. And I recognized for the first time, and this is what we're going to be talking about, that I was stained. And that the stain that I was stained with had somehow penetrated to a deep place. It had shaped who I was, who I was becoming, the way I lived my life. And all of a sudden, I just started, I was able to just look back in the way I had been with my staff and the way I'd been with my kids and recognize not only was I stained, but the kind of Christianity that I was portraying to my kids and to my staff was really abhorrent. It had really missed the mark. In fact, I ended up going back five years later and sitting down with all my staff and saying, look, the model that I set before you was wrong. It was, it was messed up. And just repenting of that. But at, I was at, on Highway 395. It's the highway that leads you from L.A. to, like, Mammoth. And it's just desolate. It's just a desert. It's no place to go. Um, but I was driving on that highway, and I pulled over. And in just a place of desperation, I just cried out to God at that point. I, I prayed a, a one word. I prayed help. 
And God met me at that place, and he reminded me of two things. Uh, number one, that I was accepted in the beloved, and that I'd become stained with something else. I'd been stained with the blood of Jesus. And that God looked on me and uh, rejoiced over me, though I still felt the stain of my sin. One of the things I want us to do is today I want to talk about that stain. Because I think it's a human condition, it's not just my condition. It's a human condition. It's not just something that Christians grapple with. It's part of human nature. And if you're a human being, you grapple with these things. And we're going to talk about that today. Tomorrow we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about what it means to do, when we do ministry as God's people. In Acts 13, we're told David served the purposes of God in his generation, and then he died. That's a great epitaph to have on your tombstone. You served the purposes of God in your generation, and then you died. Great life. When you do that, it stains you. When you live in this world, this world will stain you. And we're going to talk tomorrow about what does it mean to live in that place and to be stained by the world as we do ministry. The third day, uh, I want to leave it open, and I want you guys to really inform that. You're getting... Over the course of this week, it's like we're trying to take a 20-pound turkey and stuff it in a two-pound bag. I mean, you're just getting, we're just packing it in there, right? You just got some this morning, last night, you're going to get it from me. Then after you leave here, you're going to go get it over there. Then you're going to get it tonight, you're going to get it from me again. And it's inevitable that in all of this, it's going to stir some questions. And some questions that you need to risk. I think Christianity, if it's true, if God is there, then God can afford you risking those open and honest questions. And I want you to do that. And I know I'm not going to expect you to stand up in this class and just bury your soul. But one thing, I don't know how we're going to do this, uh, but it's talking to me. We've got a song to listen to here in a bit. So on the third day, and you could do this anywhere in between. You could get them to me. You could get them to John. I, I'm sure we'll come up with some kind of way of doing this. But if you have a question that's arising out of this, something that, we need, that we've not hit on, I'd love to be able to take those questions the third day, those issues, and we're going to turn those things over. And so it's a chance for you guys to say, this is what I need you to talk about. This is having heard all that I've heard. What about this issue? What about that issue? What about this one? I struggle with this thing. Uh, it, it may even be removed from some of the things, but whatever that is, I want to just have an open time where we can talk sort of openly and honestly about some of those things. So that's sort of our game plan for the next three days, and we'll see how far we get. I'm already worried about how far I'm going to get today. So I'm already behind, and we've not even begun. Uh, so let's begin. Uh, I want to begin by looking at a passage in Jeremiah 18. Um, Jeremiah 18 says something about God and his work among us, but I think, I think there's a side note to this passage in that Jeremiah says something about us as human beings. Um, I think I want to, you're going to hear me use this language of human, 
Because I think so often we talk about Christians, and we almost separate the dynamics, I think, that are true of Christians from those that are at times true of humans. And what God is doing in Jesus, number one, is not just making Christians. He's making human beings. He's making real humans, people as they were intended to be. Not this other thing that we call a Christian. And that's a fine label so far that we understand what a Christian is, is a human being, as God intended them to be. Um, and what we're looking at describes human nature. And I'm just going to read this. Uh, some, it, it refers to something about us, and we could look at other passages about this. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And that's speaking directly about the way that God in the gospel shapes people, and we're going to get to that. But I think one of the things that we can affirm, sort of infer from this is that we as people, the Bible uses the metaphor of clay all the time. And I think that that's a great thing to understand about yourself. Uh, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, that your jars of clay, you know the music group, jars of clay, that comes out of 2 Corinthians 4. It's a metaphor that, that's used all the time. And I think one of the things we can learn from that is that you as a person are shapeable, you're stainable, you're, you're, you're influenced, you're stainable, you're influenced, or you're shapeable. And I think all those metaphors, all those dynamics are interchangeable. So when we talk about being stained, we're talking about being shaped. When we talk about being shaped, we're talking about being influenced. And I think all three of those things really mean the same thing. And because we're clay, we're easily shaped. We're easily influenced. We're easily stained. It's happening to us all the time. So what I mean by that is tomorrow, some of you are going to go river rafting, right? Anybody going here? All six of you, all right? So all six of you are going to have a fun time river rafting tomorrow. And when you go, you're going to see the you know, rocks in the river. So hopefully you will only feel them with your feet and not your face or anything else. <laughs> but there's a lot of rocks in that river, right? And those rocks have the experience of just sort of the perpetual, constant flow of the river over them. And the river, as it flows over the, those rocks, it shapes them, doesn't it? Do you find real sharp, jagged rocks in those rivers? No, they're all smooth. In fact, you go to a, a hardware store and you buy river rock right? And river rock always looks the same. It's very smooth. You can skip them. And they, have, they show the influence of that rock water running over them. And there, I think that's a picture of what it looks like when we get stained or when we're shaped. We're like rocks. And living life is living in a stream that's constantly, perpetually shaping you, and it's unavoidable. As human beings, you are clay, and you and I are clay, and you are constantly being shaped. You're constantly being influenced by the world in which you live. You're influenced by your peers. You're influenced by your parents. You're influenced even by your culture. Uh, you know, Katie, my wife, goes to England. She can't get off the plane without speaking with a British accent. I don't know what happened. We, we have a girl here, I think one of the new staff, uh, Kara, she's from Ireland, right? She's going to be in the next group. I was talking to her yesterday. I said, what happens to you when you get off the plane in Ireland? I said, the accent rush on? She says, oh, yes. I said, can you turn it on? Yes. 
we're shaped by our culture. There's so many things around us that really are shaping who we are. Uh, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, one of the things that was sort of big in that day was that everybody was going to Denver, Colorado. And everybody was going to Denver, Colorado because they were starting to recognize that, you, that they as people were the, bore the, the effects of the influence of so many people on their life that they were going to Denver, Colorado to find themselves. And what they wanted to do when they went to Denver is they wanted to sort of peel back the layers of influence and to try to find out who they were beneath all of that. And why Denver became the place where this would happen, it was like that was the personal potato, potato peeler capital of the world where you could peel back these influences. But it was like the thing that you did, you went to Denver to try to find yourself. And I think the struggle that so many people in those decades were having is that what you would find out is that, I think that what they did is that they're like an onion. That if you pull away this influence or that shaping influence and this one, what you have left is nothing. Um, and that was part of the struggle. It's like these things have, don't just impact the way that, that I live, they actually have formed who I am. And if I peel them all away, I don't have anything left. What I want us to do is to spend a little time, we're going to break up here for a few minutes, not long, uh, maybe just four minutes or so, into your groups and talk about the way, how do you recognize the influence, both positive and negative, that your parents, your peers, or the culture has had on you? So let's do that. How, how has your peers, your parents, or the culture helped to shape who you are? So let's spend a few minutes doing that really quick. So go ahead and break up. Okay, so, so I want to hear a little bit about what you guys said, but we're, I'm not going to have you raise your hands and I'm not going to call on you, just because we're only going to take a minute or two to do this. Just throw some things out in simple statements, one after another, about what you came up with in your group. So just one after another, just sort of toss them out there, some family. things that were said. Family. So family influences, how, what do you recognize from that? Oh, uh, I guess, well, for example, my family, I have a really strong, like, I have to be independent because of what my parents kind of, once I got to about like 13, I'm like, stay around here. Great. So a sense of independence that's come out of the home from the family. So other, maybe other things just about family. How has it shaped you, positive or negative? Daniel? Having a, uh, not being spared the rod when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so th this is dangerous for me as soon as I call my son. You know, like, oh, man. I used, uh, for a while I was, I was rather dangerously, but like over the past year, I'm looking at kids at school that weren't really strictly brought up or, or like, uh, like, but like anything like that at all, I realized I got an advantage in it and maturity of like how I acted towards others. So others for parents or, or even peers, how have your peers influenced you positively or negatively? Like the way they talk influences you? Yeah, the way they talk. Big time. David. I would say the way they approach other people. Um, it's cool. Sense of elitism. You know, maybe like I'm into these people, I don't care about these people on the fringe, or I'm into this group, I'm not into that group, or whatever, the way they approach people. Like self image, like the way you're supposed to look in a certain group, the way they want you to look, otherwise you can't be their friend. Self image or identity, same thing. 
letting your peers define, giving them permission to tell you who you are. This is who you are. You're ugly, you're pretty, you're smart, you're dumb. You know, this is who you are. Anything else? I know there's a lot. Peer pressure? It's just peer pressure you know, to be something, do something, whatever it might be. Well, good. Uh, Anything more. around you, basically, you just kind of, uh, you know, human beings, we just absorb everything. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't really notice it, but we kind of draw everything in. So, at one level, that's what we're saying. At some level, we're a sponge. We've been shaped by our environment. But the thing that the, the, the gospel tells us is that we're not merely a product of our environment. We're not just a sum of influences. So it's the tension between, look, people around you speak into your life. They have the power to influence and shape you. But if we merely believe that, you would go to college and you would study behaviorism, that you're just a product of your environment. You're a sum of all these influences and you're nothing more. You were born into this world with a blank slate, the tabula rasa, and the more people, you, and just depending on where we drop you, that's who you become. I don't think that's true of human nature, but I think it reveals an aspect of human nature that's very true of us. The Bible says that there's something far deeper that's shaping you, and it's something actually that we're aware of, and with, uh, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 15, last passage we're going to read. Now, this is a fascinating topic to me. I feel like we could talk about this all day. But we get about 10 more minutes. And I don't know how I'm going to do that. Matthew 15, we're going to look at verses 10 to 20. Jesus called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands do not, does not defile anyone. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that there is something that comes from, that's lurking beneath the surface of who you are, that's shaping who you are. And there's signs of it in your behavior and in your character and in the way that you act in this world. But there's a problem that's lurking deep beneath that, and Jesus says it's in your heart. And what's coming out of that place is what's really affecting everything that you see. And I think the great illustration of that is the Gulf oil disaster. You know, you go to the Gulf of Mexico, you fly over, and you see the, the grand mess, right, that's being produced there. You know, like a third of the Gulf now you can't fish in because of just the stain of that oil. 
But every other day about, I walk into this cafe around the corner of my house. It's where I tend to meet a lot of people. And they have this 54-inch LCD TV, and it's glued to CNN. And not only is it glued to CNN, it's, you know how they have the live feed of the oil, that broken vent? It's, that's all that they show. You walk in, and it's like, they don't show anything else. They just want you to remember that as you're here, oil is spewing from a very deep place. And it's creating a lot of havoc, something that's dark, it's insidious. It's infecting everything. Everywhere it goes, everything that it touches, it's bringing death. And so everything that you see is emerging out of that one place, that deep place, and it's touching and affecting everything. Jesus says human beings are the same way. That out of a deep place inside of you is emerging something that's shaping who you are. And that vent, that well, the place of the heart uh, is the place that that's emerging out of. And the way that that heart looks untouched by God is how it looks on, on CNN. It's dark. It's, it's shameful. It's life dominating. It's hideous. It's all the stuff that he, Jesus goes on. It says it produces a wretchedness. And that's what's coming out of that. And we call the kind of stuff that emerges out of that kind of heart sin. And I think that gives us a, a good picture of sin because sin is a topic that I think it's easy for us to hear that word and to discount it because you hear it all the time. If you go to church, you hear about sin. And it just becomes a very vague, nebulous, impersonal kind of thing where sin is radically personal and immensely relevant. Sin shapes who you are, who you're becoming, what you're going to be in your life. I might ask you the question, what do you want to do and what do you want to be with your life? You might answer that, but one of the things that's answering that for you is what's coming up out of that well. It's shaping who you're becoming, what's coming out of your heart. And so unless we address the heart, it's, ha it's shaping who you're going to be, the way you're going to approach life. We have a gal that's moving to our church from the East Coast. She just graduated out of John Hopkins, got all this full-ride scholarships to go to all these places. She turned them down. She's coming to our church because she's really struggling. She said, Rick, if I could go to all these things, look, I have my life made for me. But I said, look, the one thing you don't understand is that you're a bit, the way that you live your life in that career, the way that you're going to relate to all those people, the way you're going to approach your profession is being shaped by your heart. And if you don't address the heart, who, the way you live in all of that, in your career, with your friends, is all going to be altered. It's going to be different. So she's coming here because she recognizes, I've got to address my heart. God will take care of my career because she says, look, right now, out of my heart is, is spewing all kinds of dirtiness. Uh... The problem with sin, I'm thinking about how I'm going to cut this down. The problem with sin, Jesus says, is that we so easily recognize the thing that's so hard to see 
we so easily recognize the sin in others. It's like the speck. You ever see, you ever watch National Geographic? You watch those monkeys and they get into one another and they just sort of dig. And they find those little bugs. Jesus says, human beings, we have that propensity. Stuff that's embedded deep in other people, man, we're like experts at like rooting it out. Just take that little speck out, that little bug. We're like monkeys, you know? He says, that, that's who we are. And not only do we recognize sin in other people, we, we, we're entertained by it. When you walk into a grocery store and you stand in line, what are all those magazines? What do they display in other people? Sleeves. Sleeves. This person's a scumbag. This person's left this person, and this one's done this thing. It's, look, we're entertained by the sin we see in other people. But Jesus says the glaring stuff that's actually shaping who you are, that well, it's immense, it's gushing. That it's a plank in your eye. You can't notice it. Uh, I was going to go off on a story, but don't have time for that. Um, there's a there's a song. Anybody here heard of, heard of Suit John Stevens? Oh, I'm surprised. This, this is good. Uh, he's big in the hipster world. Uh, he talks about this, and I want you to hear this one song by him. It's poor sound quality. I understand that. But maybe you'll like to introduce you to somebody. He talks about this need to understand who we are. And he's talk this is a song about John Wayne Gacy, not John Wayne, the movie actor. Anybody here know who John Wayne Gacy was? What's that? He was a murderer. He killed 33 people. 33 people, and he buried them under his house. He buried 27 of them under his house, threw the other six in the river. Uh, and he actually, he actually at one point posed in a photo with Rosalind Cotter, uh, Jimmy Carter's wife. That's just an FYI. But, um, intriguing dude. So. Dressed up like a clown for them 
with his face painted white and red. And on his best behavior in a dark room on the bed, he kissed them all. He killed ten thousand people with a slight of his hand, running far, running fast to the dead. He took off all their clothes for them. He put a cloth on their lips, quiet hands, quiet kiss on the together. Thank you for the clarity and the honesty of the gospel, for what you said about us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you tomorrow.
if I if I Oh, we're early? Oh, then sit back down. Sorry. I was thinking 9.30. I, was, I got confused. So which really means I have to, I have like 10 minutes. Right. I can wear it. So at least five more minutes. So we can keep going here. Um, I'm going to still say, what I still just, I want to, I want to spend a little bit more time to get the power of uh, Sue John Stevens' song. You've got to understand sort of the heinousness of John Wayne Gacy, right? Before, and that's what makes that end statement so strong. That's why he spends his whole song really talking about John Wayne Gacy. Before we can talk about the great hope of Jesus, before you can talk about the power of the gospel, before I think that really begins to mean something in your life, I think you have to come to the end of yourself. It's like a, that movie, There Will Be Blood. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah. That is a movie to see. That is a movie about the way a well shapes a human being. Uh, a great, if you haven't seen it, I'd say see that movie. Because there's so many almost biblical pictures in that movie. But here is this man who gets dominated by this need to succeed, right? Yeah, I have a competition in me, right? He says in the middle of this. And he lives this life, and what does he do? He destroys his entire life. He becomes like Nebuchadnezzar at the very end. He's sitting in his grand palace, and he's like an animal. He's eating the, these steaks, and he's eating them like an animal. He's lost all his humanity. He's lost all his dignity. He's destroyed his son. He's destroyed everything that meant anything to him. And at the very end of all of that, he just sits there, you see his back, and he says, I'm done. End of the movie. I think one of the things where Jesus brings us to very often, and that's the point I was at in the, in the middle of that desert, is he brings us to the point where we just say, I'm done. I'm done with my little sin management strategies. I'm done with taking out my little toothbrush and trying to scrub my boat. I need something else. And that's why Jesus came. And it's important that we get that he didn't come just to one day get you into heaven. Jesus came to make a different human race. He came to make human beings who would live a different kind of way. People knew, who, who would know what it meant to, to live as God intended. People who would live out of a, out of a different place in their life, an alternative community. That's what he's doing. He's not just getting people into heaven. He's changing people now. That's why it was the good news of the kingdom, that God is changing human beings now. And he's making a people like George Whitfield who are compelling because they're, they're distinct. There's something about the way that they live that's very different. And it's because that well down there has been changed. Not that the well is not producing. Jesus says, true to all human beings, is you have a well and it's always going to produce. The well doesn't get capped. The well gets changed. So that what comes out of that well changes who you're becoming. In John 7, Jesus refers to this. It's a great promise. This is, this is a promise to pray. John 7. 
this is one of the passages that when I was 25 grabbed me and just sort of beat me because I felt like Jesus was talking about something that in no way connected with me. It in no way connected with my experience in the Christian life. And I think unless this in some kind of way does, uh, let me just tell you now, let me tell you something about your future. That if this doesn't become true of you, you'll be like one of the people who will be in my church in a year. You may not be in my church, but you'll be in a church like mine. You'll be 28 years old, and you will have lived the Christian life out of a place that disconnects with you. And I think that's one of the greatest problems of our day and age, that people are living a life, and they profess faith in one thing, but they operate. Their theology and the beliefs and the values that they operate have no connection with the, with the faith that they profess. It's the constant story throughout the Old Testament where the people of Israel are professing one thing and they're acting another way. And it gets so extreme that you see in the book of Ezekiel that they're having a worship service in the temple and God has left and they don't care, they don't even notice. It's, there's a disconnect. And even God promises that look, that, look, in Isaiah 58, your faith will not work. Christianity will fail for you. It will come up short. You'll become cynical and you'll jump off the boat unless you learn how to live out of a deep place. That's what God actually promises, that your Christianity will not work. Your faith will not connect you to God. It's what Isaiah 58 is all about. He says, you're coming to me and your prayers aren't working. You don't feel disconnected. You feel disconnected to me. And God, what he's really saying is, it's true. Christianity doesn't work for some people. And it's because they never got to this point of connecting with God and living out of a deep place. And my grand concern for you is even in all the stuff that you hear to, over this course of the week, is that you would live at the surface level of the gulf. And you wouldn't recognize that you live out of a deep place and that you wouldn't address that, which Jesus does. And he's doing that in this passage. So really hear what he's saying. John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He's got good news. This is why he came. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is Jesus saying there? What is Jesus saying there? What's his promise? I transform the heart. I do well transformation, right? Just back to the gulf illustration. I'm the one who comes and transforms that well. I do what nobody else can do. Everybody else is trying crazy things to stop it, to do all that. I can do what nobody else can do. I can take the leopard and change its spots. I can take the Ethiopian and change its skin. I can take the well of your heart and change it so that it produces something different. It produces life. And you flourish as a human being. You live the life God intended you to live. You become a lover of God and a person who loves their neighbor. Because I changed the well. And what we have to get away from is living life up at the surface and letting God begin to work at the level of our wells. When we talk about stained, being stained, Jesus says, that's what I do. My blood stains you so deeply 
that it will transform your will. You're shaped by your peers, you're shaped by your family, you're shaped by your culture, right? You're also shaped by that well that is your heart. Naturally, your heart is producing things that are shameful and stuff that we just don't like to talk about. That stuff that's lurking down in there that only you know about, Jesus says it comes out of your heart. I'm not about just producing guilt. I'm not about just beating you or condemning you. I'm about transforming that heart because I was condemned in your place. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're going to sort of work forward. Uh, now I am over time. Uh, that's what we're going to sort of work forward tomorrow. So go in the grace of God. Remember.